Today, I am joined by Chris Elliott, whose portfolio career of headhunter, business consultant, lyric tenor, and educator sees him travel the world, often wearing all of these hats at the same time. In this episode, we are talking frankly about the importance of knowing what the business of music is, where young musicians fit into it, and how to shape a career path either in or outside music. We explore the importance of communication, identify the specific skill sets that can be transferred between music and other career fields, and agree on the best cookie type being chocolate chip. So, Chris Elliott, hi, thank you very much for, for joining me. Hello, lovely Niku. Very nice to be here. Yes. <laughs> Good to see um, you. Yeah, but it's it's been quite a while, actually. That, it has. That we, well, it was it was it Edinburgh International Festival. Yes, was the last with, time we worked together, wasn't it? And which year was that? Oh, I don't even want to know what year. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> too long, too long, too long, a long time ago, <laughs> long time ago. So, Chris, you're joining today. Always helps. Basically, all, always, always useful. But you basically we thought to get together and have this chat because mm-hmm. you have had experience, of course, within the music world, uh, performing, yep. et cetera, and uh, studying to a high level. Um, but also your experience goes much broader than that. And um, you didn't really have the most predictable of journeys to music college and beyond. <laughs> Um, that that is sort of the the cookie cutter version of music college. So just tell me a bit, remind me what your journey was. I know you started as a chorister, and then there was this I time did. that you wanted to audition for for college, and you got some very interesting views or interesting advice when you were eighteen. Yeah, so I mean, my my background was I I was a chorus at Durham Cathedral. I had that wonderful musical grounding. Then got a scholarship to a private school, which was something from my family background, which was certainly an interesting development. And why I talk the way I do, as opposed to like a normal <laughs> Northumbrian. Yeah, and then at eighteen, I needed to make the decision. You know, did I go to music college? Did I go to to university? You know, what should I do in order to eventually become a a singer. And I was in the National Youth Choir. One of the admin people in the National Youth Choir suggested I call up somebody at a, a music college that she knew, um, who, who was a teacher there and would give me some advice. And um, I didn't know him from Adam. And he basically said, off the record, don't go to music college at 18, particularly if you're a man, because your voice is effectively just rebroken. Yeah. And you need time to allow it to, you know, get stable. He said, go to university because it's a very tough profession and most people won't make it. So you need an insurance policy and the best insurance policy is a degree. Mm-hmm. And then also university has a much, much broader canvas on which to experience life and how it works and a variety of different things that you can find you might wish to do, like clubs and societies and all this stuff. And also the opera is about life. And if you haven't experienced life, you can't sing it. And so, what was and then, what was your reaction to that? When well, it made a lot of sense to me actually, and I still yeah. think it's some of the best advice I've ever been given. Because the idea was that then, once you've done university, you then go out and work for a few years and experience the real world, and then in your mid twenties, when you're ready, go back and do a postgrad 
And by the time you finish the postgrad, you'll be at the same place everybody else will be, and you will actually probably have much more useful life skills as a result. And he said that, that I do remember him saying that it applied less to women because most female voices are seen to need to start at a younger age mm-hmm. uh, and potentially have a shorter shelf life to, to or a window rather in order to kind of make it, yeah. whatever that means. And probably we can probably talk about that later on. <laughs> um, and the perception versus the reality. But I think it was excellent advice. And actually what happened was I ended up going to music college you know, 10 years later, having had a very interesting corporate career, which had given me a, my own backup plan of being able to make money in order to fund my musical development. Right. So it was, it was really, really good advice. So Um, so talk to me about the corporate world that you then went into and perhaps which skills that you notice you, you took from the corporate world to your performing or vice versa. Well, I mean, the reason I, my start in the corporate world was because I spent most of my university life engaged in student politics and debating, mm-hmm. um, which was actually much less dull than it sounds. Um, <laughs> and, you know, debating took me all around the world and got me the ability to inhabit other people's shoes and opinions and views, because that's what you have to do. You're, you're, you're just given the topic, you might mm-hmm. completely disagree with it, but you still got to argue that case. And, and how, much, how much time do you get to... Oh, about seven to, minutes. Oh, okay. Right. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, you have to really boom, 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 think quickly. And it's really good because it, it usually, for the vast majority of the it teaches you a phenomenal amount of empathy mm-hmm. because you, you can't not. I mean, one of the best debates I ever saw was somebody who is quite an orthodox Jewish friend of mine argue for a free state of Palestine. And it was one of the most convincing arguments I've ever seen in my life. Well, wow. you know, so I mean, that that to just give you an idea of that is the kind of extent of the breadth of thinking that you had to have, mm-hmm. and that was actually really useful in terms of inhabiting roles in operas, yes. um, and, uh, and also of understanding in the business world what other people might require, and therefore tailoring my message to what they needed. Mm-hmm. So I started out in business development. And actually, my naive idea was that I just make a ton of money in commission and I just go straight to music college and fund my entire way through and then it'd be marvelous. And then I'd be adopted by Covent Garden and I'd be a star. And of course, it didn't happen. But uh, <laughs> it was really useful, the, the corporate world, because I then, the industry at the time, the two big industries that were growing the most were IT and recruitment. Mm-hmm. So I then joined business development team in an IT recruitment company. And then after a while, they asked me to set up the headhunting arm of this company. So what do you uh, think, what, what is it, which traits do you think they spotted in you to ask you to set that up? What, what um, set you apart from other people, potentially? <laughs> Brutally, honestly? I had a posher voice than everybody else. Okay. Again, my abandoning of my Northumberland was uh, was to my advantage in that particular case. But so that's um, performance in in essence. In essence, yes, yes. Um, and and the idea was that the, well, you had that's the voice that you needed to have in order to do that profession. That's quite ironic, isn't it? Considering yeah. we all have a certain voice we need to train in order to have our profession now. Yeah. And 
uh, and I kind of blagged it. I just completely bluffed it. And I, I researched stuff and I made stuff up as I went along. And I found I had a knack for it and an intuition for it, largely because I'd been given this skills at university that had nothing to do with my university course. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I do believe that you should graduate from university life first and a university degree second. You should make sure you get a good degree, but if you're only going to university to get a degree, you're really, really, really missing the point. Right. Um, which, is, which is the problem with you know, universities asking students to either be in bubbles or to attend university remotely. I don't think the, the massive majority of the value that a higher education gives you is actually in the degree. Um, right. And that's not what employers look for. I can tell you that as a recruiter, yeah. that's not what employers look for. And we can talk about so, that in a bit because I've got some really interesting research about that. Which might yeah, yeah, yeah. I want, to, I want to hear more about that. Well, should we just can we, should we jump yeah, to that? Just go okay. for it. Yeah. Well, jump. so, so, um, no, don't a, jump. A guy, your back, ah, your back sore. Please don't my jump. My back sore. No, no, don't do that. So, um, <laughs> it's the burden. Nico's the burden. So, a guy I was recently introduced to, Paul Porter, who works at the Bright Network, who used to work with an old friend of mine, Julia Barber, and the Bright Network, which everybody who is young, person, studenty, who's wondering, well, should I not pursue a career in music? And we can talk about that in a moment, We're sort of going slightly cock for horse, but who cares? They are really, really interesting. They effectively operate a free network for mm-hmm. undergraduates and fresh graduates in terms of advice, resources, blog posts, all this kind of stuff. But they also effectively function as a database to allow you entrance to some really amazing blue chip companies. And they've got a very large number of students because they're a big network, uh, but they're effectively redesigning the way that graduate recruitment is done. And it's a really interesting process. So, I mean, it, it might not be the only thing that you should look at, but I would certainly encourage people to look at just objectively. Mm-hmm. I was having a chat to Paul about um, the perception of a music degree, both an academic one and a performance-related one, mm-hmm. and how my suspicion of that perception being different to other humanities degrees and then again different to STEM degrees. You know? And there is definitely a bias that somebody with a music degree, whatever music degree it might be, needs to overcome that wouldn't yeah. exist for other people in the job market. And it's simply because, how should I put this? You've never seen a parent berate a child in the manner of, you know, you studied history for all those years and you never became a historian. <laughs> or you studied maths at GCSE and you never became a statistician or an actuary. You know, why did I waste all of that money and time doing your homework? Blah, blah, blah. You never see that. But how often do you see, you played that clarinet for three years and then you gave it up and it was a waste of money. You know, and of course it wasn't a waste of money because it was rewiring not. your brain to make you better at absolutely every single other academic subject. Yeah. But, uh, which we all know about and is probably a, a subject for another podcast. But the perception generally is, is that music is something other, it's something different. And that you study history or geography or English literature or whatever at university because you then might go on to do a variety of different things that may or may not be related to that subject because it's understood there's a generic set of skills that that gives you. Whereas most people will look at musicians and go, oh, well, you clearly want to have a career in music. And interestingly, if you look at stats in the States, 
in terms of non-STEM subjects being admitted to medical school, mm -hmm. you're 60% more likely to be admitted to medical school with a music-dominated graduate degree or, or even a sort of equivalent of A-levels yeah. because they see an academic level that, that there is a strong connection between music and maths and science and you know, all that kind of way of thinking that a medic requires that sort of, yes. you know, multiple multiple dimension way of thinking but generally speaking people will expect you to be in music and won't quite understand why you don't want to be in music so there's an additional obstacle that needs to be overcome because you're presumed that music is your great passion and that's why you want to do it and therefore they're thinking well if that's your passion how will you be passionate about my industry and my job and my company Yes, And of course, the reality is most people really aren't very passionate about their jobs or, or the passion is relative. You know, they, they, when people talk about passion in the corporate world, it's very different to how a performer would perceive it. It's much yes. more toned down. It's much, it's bland really to a significant extent. I don't want to denigrate it. It's just, you know, it's just a question of perception. The thing about people expecting you to do music and be passionate about it is then something you have to kind of work away. So well, I can transfer that passion. You know, I am a passionate person, therefore I can be passionate about things. And I've read up about your industry and actually I'm really passionate about that and here are the reasons why. And you yes. can turn it to an advantage, but initially it's going to be an obstacle. So you have a kind of an obstacle of, of commitment mm -hmm. and you also have an obstacle of perception. So it's how do you overcome that additional layer of bias of people perceiving you to not, be right for them because they expect you to be something else than you probably actually are and therefore don't realize what you can give which is arguably greater than your average humanities graduate and we can come on to that in a second and yeah the the, the why have you given up this thing do you have you have a lack of commitment yeah and of course the reality is that actually in order to even to get to that point where you decided not to do it you had half a huge amount of commitment to actually to, get to just get to that first place yeah. to then, you know, study and work. Cause I think, I think a lot of students don't realize if they're at music college, how different life at university is, you know, music college is pretty much a nine to five job if you're doing yes. it properly. And sometimes to the same extent, even if you're not, Whereas university life is well, not... Well, nine to nine. <laughs> <laughs> well, pretty much, yes, it is nine to nine, isn't it? You know, eight to midnight. Um, yeah. And at university, it's you know, a lecture, a couple of lectures a week, a tutorial. Mm. And then you, know, you have reading weeks and all these things that if you're terribly diligent, you might do. Um, but most people just don't. And they're off doing all kinds of other manners of things, which may or may not actually be really, really good for what employers want. And so you have to realize what you're competing against. And also that most of the people that will interview you will interview you because they're coming from the point of view of having gone to university and therefore yes. they won't understand music college. So you have to frame your CV and frame your pitch in the job interview to allow them to understand the advantages of what going to music college and doing it properly can do. Interestingly, Paul. I was talking about earlier, he, they've recently, Bright Network have recently done a survey. Yeah. And uh, I have it in front of me. And they asked students, and this is an awful lot of students because their network is like tens and tens and tens of thousands, said, what do you think graduate employers value most in candidates? Right. And this is what they said. 
Mm-hmm. The students thought first a requirement of a 2-1 degree or above. Existing industry experience, so that's like, you know, job experience, summer, you know, jobs, yeah. that kind of stuff, internships, communication skills, passion for the business, confidence, commercial awareness, problem solving, teamwork, leadership skills, organization and team management skills, and then finally to 11th, resilience, right? Now, here's interesting. They also asked employers, they asked their clients, what do they look for from their graduates? A 2-1 is sixth. Uh, existing industry experience is 11th, right? Wow. What they're actually interested in is, first of all, communication skills. Uh-huh. Secondly, a passion for the business. Third, problem-solving skills. Fourth, resilience. Now, those are the top four. You get that in buckets, from going to music college and learning Absolutely. how to be a performer. Then commercial <laughs> awareness, a 2-1 or above is sixth. It doesn't mean to say they aren't looking for a 2-1 in order to separate out the CVs, but after that, they don't really care about it. Um, then teamwork, leadership skills, organization, team management, confidence, and existing industry experience. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a de- desire for more generally, like, so the big three more generally, I think if you talk to most graduate recruiters are problem solving, resilience and commercial awareness and the things that generally look for. I know that's not necessarily, you know, it, it is largely reflected in the, in the survey. And then also teamwork, discipline, self-reliance, organization skills, confidence. Now, I don't think there's anything that demonstrates confidence and listening skills more than standing on a stage in front of a thousand people yeah. and enthralling them with an hour of performance of leader or whatever it yeah. might be, you know, or being in an opera production and being part of that whole team and working out how it gets together, often on a completely shoestring budget and having to be inventive and creative because you're put in the box, you're put in the constraints and the constraints are what make you work as a team and work together and excel. I mean, obviously there are instances where you get into the opera and you absolutely hate everybody else in it. Everybody else hates you. The director yeah. is poisonous. It's a hideous <laughs> situation. You're locked in it in a dark, dank, windowless rehearsal room for three months or whatever, if you're lucky or fortnight or usually. And you know, it, it, it can yeah. be dreadful, but of course, Look, everybody fakes it until they make it. Everybody polishes up their, their CV to be more than it is and their performance and interviews to be more than it is. And everybody expects that. But there is a lot of very positive transferable skills that having gone through the process of music college can give you. Um, so I have a question yeah. on that for you. At which point do you think, when is the best time to mm-hmm. have this conversation with musicians, whether they're at, at college level or whether they're recent graduates, et cetera. When do you think is the best time to have this conversation about what the transferable skills are? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think, I think, it should be, I think it's a conversation that is utterly lacking in music colleges. Mm-hmm. That's partly because music colleges are not interested in transferable skills. They're not interested in people doing something other than becoming solo performers. Or if you have to be in uh, an opera chorus or an orchestra, but you know, you've kind of slightly failed, but okay, you've done okay, right? Mm. That's broadly speaking how colleges think, which yeah. is so far removed from the reality of what success actually means 
yeah. in the context of being able to sustain a career in music. If you are able to make enough money through music or doing other things and music to survive and continue to make music on a professional level, then you have succeeded, plain yeah. and simple. If you can and pay any, your bills, if you can pay your bills or solely on musical yeah. income, you've made it. You've succeeded and you've done a lot more than the vast majority of other people you're going through college with will ultimately be able to manage. Yeah. And so the fact that music colleges don't acknowledge that because it's not in their interests to and don't have that open conversation about transferable skills and also make students more aware of the world outside. You know, music college is a real bubble. Yep. You know, you, you, there's no real clubs and societies to speak of. You're not meeting anybody else who isn't a musician. You know, you're not meeting medics and historians and engineers and linguists. Like language linguists, linguists, yeah, linguists. Okay, <laughs> language, language people, <laughs> language people. Dem, Dems people won't speak Dems languages. Uh, yes, isn't it? So, <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, you know, it's a very narrow, confined life. You know, you do the stuff at college, you go to the pub. So would you say it's it should actually be a continuous conversation? Totally, because uh, the, the problem is, and I'm going to be very honest here, and people are going to hate me for it, but I don't care. Um, It's very useful to understand the context in which you are being educated at music college. And the context effectively is that, that there are lots of individual people in music colleges, and I would count Niku, you genuinely, I'm not just saying because you're on the call, genuinely as somebody who will genuinely, you know, love working with their students, try to do the very best for them. I mean, it's the constant complaints of a lot of staff about how they're constantly limited by the college from doing proper good work with students that will help them. I mean, we all know that conversation, right? Mm -hmm. And it happens every day in every music college up and down the line. And because the music colleges are geared to survival. And the way they survive as organisms, as ecosystems, is for the top to ensure that there are sufficient amount of people coming through them who will become the future stars they can then talk about. Mm. And those future stars will then attract the people who want to be like them. And, you know, and we've all done it. We've all wanted to be those people. We, we don't, you know, very few people set off for a career in music wanting to be in the back row of the chorus, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. And so music colleges feed off that. And they have a very narrow curriculum, which is based on people who are usually, usually, already going to be pretty good and then they kind of polish them and go mm -hmm. out and do all the people they turn around spectacularly but only if they fit the very narrow pre very narrow precepts yeah. of what they are able to provide so if you have an amazing talent but significant physical problems they're not going to sort them some of the colleges in the states would They'd have you doing Feldenkrais every day or yoga or they'd have a physiotherapist come in or they'd have an osteopath. They'd yeah. have various people, you know, but there's none of that. And there's no suggestion that that might be an idea. Yeah, um, it's, it's sort and, of an add-on, isn't it? It is. And, and the thing about all these add-ons is they're actually essential. So to everybody listening to this podcast who thinks, oh, that evening class they're putting on on accounting, I'm not going to do that. People... Go to that accounting class. It is one of the most important things that you will learn during your time at college. Yeah. Right? It was okay for me in the sense that I had had some business experience like that. But even so, becoming self-employed, having had you know seven or eight years in the corporate world, 
it was still really tough to work out how to, how to become self-employed, how to register, how to get an accountant, if I should get an accountant, how to keep a set of accounts. You know, there's this nightmare you're chucked into and you should really have a level on it right now. Yeah. Because I, th- I think you have to make a decision is that, are you going to make it, right? And the problem is right now, we are watching the industry disappear before our very eyes and looking in the UK, at the level of likely government involvement, a lot of the organizations one would expect to work for are simply not going to make it. It's a horrible reality, but they're just not going to make it. Or if they do, they're going to be in a limping, reduced form. And do you, a lot do, of, do you a lo- think there's a way that they can reinvent themselves? Or is this something that time will tell? I think time's going to have to tell. I mean, yeah. they're also slow beasts in some ways. You know, there, there is a... Um, there is a sense of, it's a very specific form of entitlement that exists that needs to be addressed and reimagined and restructured. Let's yeah. euphemistically put it that way, I think. But if you're somebody young going into this profession, it's a bit like being told as a child to act your age. You know, well, how do you know you've never been this yeah. age before? <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's going into an industry that you don't really know about. And how can you know about it? Well, you ask everybody, and, and not just the performing side, but actually understand how the management side of it works. Because you might think that's not important to you. By goodness, if you want to impress the people enough to hire you, you have to understand how the industry actually works in every way. And then you need to develop your network massively. You need to ensure your language skills are top notch, particularly German. If you're not learning German now, learn German because the one remaining bastion of the opera world that will survive are the German speaking countries. Mm-hmm. You know, you were, I mean, look at, as an example, two of the most successful young singers of this particular generation, and they are Lou Alder and Kat Morrison, right? Mm-hmm. And both of them have done long-term festival contracts in good German houses. And they have been able to learn their trades and cut their teeth and hone their skills and be the fabulous performers that they are. Intrinsically, because they, to a certain extent, you know, they always had it, but they've been allowed the space to be able to do that. Because if you don't have, if somebody doesn't give you the ability to sustain yourself beyond college for all the years that it will take to make it, then you're not going to make it. So if you don't have a financial plan to ensure that you can do that, and it might be a partner, it might be mummy and daddy, Otherwise, it's going to have to be your alternative revenue stream. And I'm sorry if that sounds particularly corporate, but that's the reality. That's what you're going to have to do. Because otherwise, you're simply not going to make it. Because I I think so often a a change that I can see, especially because of the pandemic and how Mm -hmm. students are, well, not just students, how musicians are looking again at what they're doing and where they fit into the world. I think it's so easy to just think, oh, it will be okay. It will work not, out. No, no, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, some, something will happen. Somebody yeah, will yeah. find me. And that's just not the case. It's not going to cut it. Yeah, yeah. No. I mean, it's interesting. I do know of a member of staff at the music college who got really wrapped on the knuckles for doing this. But all of the students were sort of lined up, you know, sort of the intake, the initial induction Mm-hmm. And he stood in front of them and he said, look to your left and look to your right. Now look behind you, look in front of you. Now look all the way along the road, look at everybody else. Okay. They all have the same dreams as you. 
they all have the same aspirations. If one person in this room makes it, it will be an exceptional year for the college. Makes it. Yeah. Yeah. By which, of course, they meant had a, you know, Lou Alder, Cat Morrison. Yeah. Coven Garden. Yeah. So, and you, you had this amazing analogy earlier when we were talking about how do you put into general world perspective the way that you put in perspective to the corporate world, your colleagues mm-hmm. in the corporate world, what it is to be at Covent Garden. Yeah, so... Yeah, just, um, that was an interesting um, yeah, well, parallel I, that I, I think... I had a lot of support from people when I left to start my formal musical career, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it really started at the age of nine, but, but you know... <laughs> and. In part, it was because I was just kind of getting out of the corporate world because a lot of people get very sort of sickened with the corporate world if they're not doing something that they love. A lot of people just want to live vicariously through. You'll find that is that people will attach themselves to you because they want to, you know, they see you living the what they perceive to be the life that they would have loved to have lived Mm -hmm. as a performer. And it's never a good idea to tell them too much of the reality of that if they give you money. Just a useful <laughs> notes. People kept saying after I'd studied and I was out in the world, they said, well, come on, when are you seeing in Covent Garden? When are you seeing in Covent Garden? And initially, I didn't really have an answer to that, except for, oh, well, you know, it's a bit tough and everything. After a while, I said, hang on a second, right? Singing in Covent Garden for me is the equivalent of you being on the executive board of a FTSE 100 company and possibly even being the chief exec of that company. So you get on in your FTSE company and you get to the executive board and I'll get you two tickets to see me at Kong Garden. Yeah. That right? <laughs> and that's the concept because the pyramid is massively steep and it is piled up, and I'm sorry about this now, it is piled up with the bodies of all of the people that didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that effectively, I mean, music college is, is, is just a question of collateral damage, right? And there was an enormous amount of collateral damage in order to allow the few people to get to where they, where they need to be. And, and, and you have to understand that in, in the context that the numbers are against you. So you have to make a decision, am I actually going to make it? Why am I going to make it? What makes me unique and different? What are the USPs, the unique selling points? that I have that other people do not have. And if I don't have those, even though it might break my heart, what else can I do to make myself happy in life? Because when I was doing a uh, schools outreach program for the Edinburgh International Festival again, yeah. and we had suddenly had half an hour at the end of the thing. It was, it was a, I wrote this sort of hour-long introduction to the Magic Flute. It was kind of the horrible histories for teenagers version of the Magic Flute. So that when they yeah. went to <laughs> see the Berlin Commercial opera production of the Magic Flute, with all this fantastic animated projections and everything they did, but, yeah. but um, yeah. they would you know, be comfortable with it and everything. Anyway, but at the end we had half an hour, and it happened to be a school where there were lots of kids that were very musical, mm-hmm. and they started asking questions about going to the career. And you know, we were quite a disparate bunch of people that brought together who... We didn't know, not everybody knew each other, you know, but we performed together and we put it together in double quick time as you usually have to do. And, and we stood there and we all just looked at each other. And there was a moment where we just collectively acknowledged through the ether, yeah, this is what we're going to say. And we all said, if there is anything else in this world that you can do that you will enjoy and be good at, and get fulfillment from and find purpose in, 
other than this, go and do it. Honestly, if there is anything else you can find purpose and joy in your life to do, go and do it. Only if this is the only thing that you truly believe will bring you happiness in life, pursue this. Yeah. And, and I, it was a I really would want to point. add to that of, and keep checking in. Mm. Uh, if you pursue I, I, just, I just splashed my face. <laughs> um, there we go. Keep uh, checking uh, in and see what is it that really makes you happy mm-hmm. rather than feeling, because I think many people go through music college and are newly grads or have been out of college for five years or whatever mm-hmm. and are still, for want of a better term but chugging along because yeah. they feel they made that commitment 15 years prior and therefore they still have to do it but your dreams that that you had 15 years ago might not be the same no now i agree and most likely yeah. wouldn't be the same now you know yeah. i think it's it's a very rare occurrence for somebody to have the same dream for for decades Mm-hmm. And to realize that. Yeah. And often what then happens when you've realized that dream, and, and I'm going to talk from personal experience here, mm-hmm. I, f- I was 11 when I knew I wanted to have a PhD in music mm-hmm. for various reasons. Um, and I had a timeline that That's I... That fabulous, I by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I had this timeline set out and it was literally just ticking boxes and I gave myself a grace period of three years. I wanted to have my PhD before I'm 30. So if I did everything box wise, I would have had it by the the age of 27. Of course, life happened and I got it 10 years after the original plan. Yeah. And that's great. I achieved this. This this is a goal that I set that, I mean, everything I've done up until this point had moved towards that point, to that goal. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of um, thinking and creative exploring that I now am doing and have to do because it's like, oh, what now? I've, I've got know. there, you know? And I think that is, for me, that's the biggest lesson yeah. of, when you set out, keep checking in. I mean, totally. I mean, li- life is a journey, not a destination. I mean, I Absolutely. can't emphasize that more strongly. And if you are so, if you've got like a horse and you've got your blinkers on and you're so focused on the end goal, you don't notice any of the wonderful little shiny things along the way that you might want to pick up. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a part <laughs> of music study that, that needs that. You mm. have to have blinkers, but you have to, I think it's finding the balance between when and where to have the blinkers and when and where not to have the blinkers. Well, it's a bit like... And a, how often you take yeah. them off or put them back on or whatever. Totally. It's a bit like, you know, producing good vocal technique. You know, you need the core of the sound. Yep. That's your focus. But the core can only exist in this lovely, warm, but this lovely, warm, resonating tube. And if you didn't have that thing around you with all those various possibilities, the focus would mean nothing. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's a useful analogy, I don't know. But the, it, it's absolutely, and also the other big important thing is there is no shame. There's no shame in changing tack. And who cares what people think about you 
oh, well, you know, he, he ended up, you know, he went into teaching. You know, yeah. it says in such a dismissive way, God, the amount of amazing stuff you can do teaching kids and, yeah. and, and young adults and the amount of extraordinary gifts you can give yourself and them and experiences you can have. And the, it's an extraordinary thing. It's an amazing, wonderful, magical thing. And you shouldn't be denigrated. And I think one and, learns, and the other thing one learns we, so much by teaching. Yeah, well, completely. Actually, I mean, that, that, now that was one of my mistakes. So mm-hmm. here's a mistake, right? I made the decision that I would never teach anybody singing until I really, really actually understood my technique mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be in a position of passing bad technique onto somebody else that might then limit their stuff because I had a lot of that when I was young mm-hmm. before I got to music college. And actually... Right. You know, it wasn't really until after music college, even though I did have some phenomenal stuff in music college, that I really actually had people who helped me get my technique together because it's a Rosetta Stone experience, you know? There is no universal language of singing teaching. So one person's out as another person's in, one person's pushing, another person's pull, you yeah. know, up in. And, like, and you have to find somebody who speaks your language yeah. in order to go, oh, oh, that's what they meant. And also all these pennies drop. I mean, I remember being in a... To a singing lesson with Arthur Levy in New York, him saying something, and all of a sudden, I was like 15 years back in a room with Pat McMahon, yeah. and the penny suddenly dropped. And it's not, and Pat McMahon is a phenomenal teacher, but I just wasn't quite, I hadn't learned the language to understand everything that she meant, you know? Yeah. And all of a and sudden, I had this immense gratitude for her. Yeah. in this room in New York, even though it had happened 15 years ago. It's an extraordinary experience. Yeah. Um, because it just it, shows how the development happens because that seed was sown 15 mm-hmm. years prior. Totally. But you had to go through the whole journey. To and it sinks into your brain and all of a sudden it has made sense. And then it's much, the much richer and fuller because then it all comes. It's like a jigsaw. You just have to put the jigsaw. And some people are lucky and they'll find somebody who can put the jigsaw together really quickly some people have mu- most of the jigsaw put together some people have pretty much every single one yeah you know except the really blue weird sky bits that take ages to put in you can't <laughs> that. but but, uh, but it's, it takes it's something that takes a long while and sometimes you just don't ha- find all the pieces of the jigsaw i mean i i discovered that i had a massive problem with my basically digestion which means that the more i sing the more reflux i get Mm-hmm. And there's nothing I can really do about it. And so I'm whole below the waterline. Um, and so far, um, you know, so, so I, I, I just had to change tech. You know, I'm probably not going to get to sing some of the roles I would love to sing. And that's a shame. But there's lots of other compensatory stuff, which, will, which is brilliant. But yeah, so it's a question of changing tack. And also remembering that in changing tack, a lot of musicians are very fearful of the corporate world. They see it as strange and others. So there's kind of a mutual thing. The corporate world doesn't understand the musical world. The musical world doesn't understand the corporate world. Even though there's lots of crossover and analogies, they kind of think, oh, well, that's something I can't do. Mm-hmm. Well, my mantra has been for a very long time, my motto is, you don't have to be good at something. You just have to be less rubbish than most other people. And, and, and that's not to denigrate anything that anybody does, but what you mm-hmm. have to do is to find a niche that you're just comparatively really good at. And then as long as that comparison is there, people will respect you for what you do, and then you can learn all you want. The story, I jumped, as I, as I did know, but the singing teaching, I didn't. I don't know. I, I ended up not teaching singing. And actually, I should have done because, you know, 
people find their own way and it takes time and it's, it's a destination or a journey and all that stuff. But it inhibited my ability to learn. It was only when I started helping, you know, um, core groups and individuals, you know, as a byproduct of what I do mm-hmm. now, I was like, oh, I'm such a ninny. I'm <laughs> such a nick. I should have done it. Because you, le- you do, you learn so much. You learn much more than you otherwise, because you actually physically have to search inside yourself. Yeah. To, and, and ironically, it's that empathy thing that I love debating. Mm-hmm. Like you have to go inside yourself and think, well, how is this other person next to me trying to work that out? And therefore, how would I? Oh, so if I do that, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, you both have an, a moment of epiphany. And it's all to do um, with communication as well. The way that yeah. we explain something or the way that somebody says to you, well, it feels like this when I sing it this way. Mm-hmm. And then you need to find a middle ground to, this, yeah. to communicate the point. Yeah, and, and also have a comfort with ambiguity. I mm. think one of the biggest damages you can have as a teacher is say, this is the way it happens. No. It's that, never the same. Irresponsible. And the comfort with ambiguity is a really useful skill in terms of transferable skills into the corporate world. You know, that ability to survive, to establish extraordinary communication and listening skills. I mean, like, if you want to become a salesperson, mm-hmm. you actually don't need to be a good talker. You need to be a good listener. Because 90% of sales is listening hard enough to work out what they actually want and then tailor the product to them. Exactly. Ah, so that's why you need it. Okay, and that's because they've told you about their granny and you've had three cups of tea and you haven't said very much. Yeah. Oh. Uh, because, know, because, yeah. because the cookies were that good as well. <laughs> that's right. Oh, chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> yes! There you go. <laughs> yeah. That's what life's all about, actually. It's all yeah. about chocolate chip cookies. Um, what no, would Mozart do? He would eat what, a chocolate chip cookie. What would Mozart do? What, what would Mozart do? Because we haven't actually asked that question, have we? No. <laughs> I, I think Mozart was a hustler. And I mean that in a really positive way. You know, yeah. Mozart went where the money was. He was an eminently practical guy. Mozart, if he was around today, would definitely absolutely be in Hollywood without question. He'd be writing okay. film scores. Mm-hmm. And in lockdown, he'd be doing these amazing uh, tutorials on YouTube about how to compose or, and how to do crossover work. Because, I mean, he would have looked at all this other music, I think, and go, oh, wow, let's have a pop of that. You know? yeah. what, are all these mu- what are these new instruments? Right, let's chuck those in. And I think a, tu- a Mozart tutorial would probably not have been, this is how to do it. No, not but at all. But it's just, look at what I do with all these ideas and put it all together. Yeah. Completely. Which I think is, is um, a good overall motto. Be a sponge, take things in, and just, in a way, make it up as you go along, but be yeah. always alert. And, and also, I mean, you know, students in lockdown now, I mean, irrespective of whether you you think you're going to make it or not, or you don't know yet, or you need a few years to discover, because that's all fine too. I mean, I think you should study anatomy and physiognomy. Mm-hmm. Like actually properly work out how your vocal instrument functions. Because a lot of people go through careers, they don't understand how their voice actually works. They've got a naturally okay technique or good technique that they then build on. All of a sudden, something goes wrong. And they don't know what to do because they don't have any of the tools to fix it. It's like some of the best teachers are not necessarily the best singers because they had a very difficult route to get to become a singer and therefore they understand so much more of what they have. They have more tools in their toolbox in order to fix things. 
So I'd say work out how your instrument actually works. I mean, I'm talking like studying medical textbooks, talking to people, looking at stuff on YouTube, because then that really informs you yeah. as to how best to use it. Because, I mean, you don't, as an oboist, I used to be an oboist, right? And uh, I love my oboe, but it kind of ultimately conflicted the amount of pressure you might have to generate. It's not necessarily <laughs> great for the vocal cord, so we gave that up. But you don't look at your instrument and go, well, I don't really care how the pads work. Yeah, of course you don't. You, you actually work out intimately how every single little clacky bit of the instrument functions so you can use better. Pianists do the same. Every, you know, why as a singer wouldn't you do that? Do it. It makes perfect sense. You don't have to go into massively difficult scientific textbooks and just work out how it works. But that's what so dictionaries they, are there for. You know, if, if there's a word you don't understand, just look it up in a dictionary. Well, that's also true. Yeah, or Google absolutely. it, I suppose. Or, or Google it. Yes. <laughs> Ask the gods of Google. They exactly. will tell you. And also, you, you know, if you're a visual learner, watch stuff on YouTube or online, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's all there. Everything in life that you need to know is there. Languages, study languages, particularly German, as for reasons we were discussed earlier, but, you know, you're most <laughs> likely to get work in Germany and that's where you'll, you'll cut your teeth. Also, broaden your knowledge. Now, I remember... Jesse Norman saying, now is the time at music college to learn operas, because if you get a career, you'll be too busy singing in order to have time to learn the operas. Obviously, that was particularly her case. Yeah. But now is a good time to not necessarily ingrain the roles in your voice if you think you've got more to learn, because otherwise you'll have to unlearn, then relearn them. But just familiarize yourself with as many operas as you can, and also the stories behind the operas. Read the books they were based on. Read the time they were written in. You know, Tom Allen talking about going to the National Gallery and looking at the paintings of the period and see how people presented themselves, how they dressed, yeah. and how society functioned, all the things that then are really useful when you go to go on the stage. Yeah. Understand how the business actually works. I can't emphasize that enough. You know, having experienced all sides of it. Networks are everything. There's no fairness in most of opera that is just connection. You know, like in the corporate world, you have AI algorithms processing everybody's CVs to ensure that it's as fair as possible so that, you know, if you're from a disadvantaged background, you're still likely to get on the thing or, or whatever. And that's all good. And the opera doesn't really function like that. It's like, who do we know who's good and we can trust to get the job done? Mm-hmm. So your network is huge. Build them. And it's, often, them. and it's often also a case of you don't necessarily have the best voice, but we know yeah. that you're going to be on time. Yeah. We know you're going to know your music. Yeah, absolutely. And you're a yeah. nice person to work with. The number of people who had phenomenal voices and ruined their careers by turning up late, not knowing their role. Mm. And then everybody else in the rehearsal room has to stand there with a short rehearsal period of time to get the show up. And they watch the rep bang out the notes with this one person that could be involved to learn their role. It's always one, isn't there? And actually, and a few of them <laughs> do still make it for reasons I simply do not understand. But a lot of them just properly fell by the wayside and yeah. didn't quite understand why, you know? It doesn't matter where you're going. It doesn't even matter if you get that chance at Covent Garden. Make sure that you've learned that role inside out. Even yeah. if you then have to pretend to learn the role of the rep, just yeah. learn it inside <laughs> out. Right? Exactly. Um, yeah. and, and also, brand you, right? You are a brand. You mm-hmm. are... As one UK opera company put it to somebody on their young artist program, let's say no more than that, you are a company artistic product. Now, I'm sorry if that sounds offensive, and it is, 
but you're just going to have to get used to it because that's what you are. Mm-hmm. And you should use it to your advantage. And again, look at the singers who are doing phenomenal work on Instagram, on Facebook, yeah. uh, on building their platform. There's on, a network you know, as well. Oh, hugely, hugely. And, and people seeing, oh, because so, now the network isn't just who you've worked with, but, oh, did you see that person on Instagram yesterday? They, they were sounding really good. Do yeah. you know anyone knows them? And if, mm-hmm. then it's a six degree separation. All of a sudden, you've got that work because of that brand that you were building yeah and there are people who scoff about people doing that and get very snotty and snooty and sniffy and all the other (laughs) all the other alliterative words you can think of and i say to them sod off their Mm -hmm. final alliteration because they just don't get it they're they're dinosaurs don't listen to them the the industry has changed that's what you need to do and ever changing Um, and ever changing yeah and you have to be malleable and adaptable and as with everything else in life you know you have to kind of go with the flow make sure that you retain your identity. I mean, one of the other things which is really useful if you properly embrace it as a performer, which you should, is the ability to take knockbacks well, because by word, my word, you're going to have a lot of them. Yeah. And often, sometimes it's personal, often it's not personal at all, it just feels it. If you can get over that, that is a really useful transferable skill. Um, vulnerability and authenticity. Mm-hmm are hugely valuable in other areas of life because it gives you a freedom to understand what you really truly want to say and who you really truly want to be. And that will usually mean you end up in the right place or in a place that you should have been or, or going to be happy being. And Which uh, sometimes might be the, the place that you didn't expect. Totally. Most of the time, invariably, will be the place that you didn't expect. Yeah. And also, emotional stamina. As a singer, singing after a while becomes mundane to us. And we forget how utterly extraordinary it is to people who are not opera singers. But also Um, because you're creating the sound the moment it leaves your your body, you're not in charge of it. No, no. And in the core of it, it's really simple. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what sometimes get people tied in knots because they have to let go so much and there's so much chance or things in place but if you're just ticking your your singing boxes as it were Mm -hmm. it works yeah because it can become mundane that can become people don't go to live music performances and they don't buy records for to hear people's voices they might think they do they go to hear people's souls Mm -hmm. and if you can have the courage and it's a massive courage i mean pavarotti said this about his father his father if you ever listen to recordings of a young Pavarotti's father he knocks pavarotti out the park yeah extraordinary natural ability but he said my father never had the confidence to stand there and say this is me this is who i am Mm -hmm. And, and I remember Malcolm Martini saying something at a, a masterclass, which in Korea, and it floored everybody in the room. And he basically said, the moment that you go on stage and with the intention of pleasing everybody in the audience, you've done something fundamentally wrong and you probably shouldn't be a performer. So because the whole point is you stand there and you go, do you know what? This is me. This is my interpretation. This is my belief. Take it or leave it. If you go into auditions with that attitude, you're already, you know, at the top of the pile because 
people are interested in something unique, something yeah. which connects to them on a visceral, emotional, reptilian brain level. And they can intellectualize it all they like, but that's actually what it's about. Yeah. And so if you, yeah, if you have the authenticity, then it speaks to everybody and people just love it. And then, and then you have the ability to just hold people in the palm of your hands. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most amazing this, the things about being on the operatic or performing stage is that people come for an emotional connection. They come in this range of emotions. And, you know, there can be people terribly happy, people terribly sad, somebody who's just, you know, had a baby born, somebody whose parents just died. You know, there's a whole range of emotions. Somebody's desperately depressed. Mm-hmm. You know, all these people, and they come, and you have the ability with the amazing work of a Mozart or a Verdi or a Puccini or whoever yeah. to be the conduit of this masterwork and interpret it in a way that gives them relief and comfort. And they, you, they give you all of their emotions and you take it and you hold that emotion with your own yeah. and you connect with the beauty of what you feel about music inside your true self and you connect with their true selves and everybody is elevated and everybody has catharsis. And at the end, they applaud you. Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell me a better profession than that? I can't. <laughs> but having said that, there are really great professions out there that you actually can find joy in. And of course, other people would say, oh, my profession is much better and I enjoy it much more. But, but you know, that, that, I think that's the essence of, of what you have to do. And you can do that and then decide it's not the career for you and go off and do something else with all of that massive amount of skill set that you're yeah. carrying into the job you then go and do. And also, if you come at things from an, like, so investment bankers, right? Let's talk about the bankers. Investment banks spend a phenomenal amount of money all trying to hire the same very, very narrow pool of graduates who have done STEM degrees and then go to Harvard Business School or whatever, right? And there are a number of other banks who've now abandoned that and are just looking to hire really interesting graduates from a much broader base. And their thinking is that we will end up with a much more diverse and creative way of coming up with inventive, clever, new ways of doing business. And we will therefore outflank all the traditional banks. And they're very right. Because one of the great things of coming from an alternative point of view is Uh you go into a situation, you go, why on earth do you do it this way? That doesn't make any sense. Why do you do it this way instead? People go, oh, that's a good idea. I never thought about that. Because things that are obvious to you as an outsider will not be obvious to them, either because they never noticed in the first place or they've just become ingrained or inured to it. And you're you're, you're getting used to what you're surrounded by, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. you, you become... Complacent. Well, yeah, complacent or just deaf to it. You know, yeah. you, you drown out the, the excess noise. Noise. You're the static. <laughs> <laughs> and we well, know about noise, man. We oh, know about noise. so much. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was an incredible chat. I, I wish we could just go on for hours and hours. I think we can, act, we should do another podcast at some point and it should just be the, the marathon version or something. Yeah, no, totally. And, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I haven't been quite as coherent as I needed to be just because nope. uh, I'm on these 
drugs that mess with my head a bit and I can't no. retrieve things the way I want to at the moment. But no, they're not medical drugs. Yes, prescribed yes, drugs. Just, yeah. kids, <laughs> don't, don't do drugs, kids. Don't do drugs. Stay in school. Don't do drugs. Um, that's why I've been skipping around a bit. Sorry. No, but, no, no. But I hope it's been of some use. Absolutely. Been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon again. Absolutely. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. It's really nice. Great. So we'll speak very soon again. Okay. Take care. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Would Mozart Do? If you want to hear more, you can listen to other episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to get in touch to ask some questions for future guests or want to join in the conversation by being a guest yourself, you can write to me at info at whatwouldmozartdo.com.